guys. I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me here on this Tuesday as we begin a brand new week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and yes, happy warriors. Check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Again, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Drop me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. I always love hearing from you guys. You are amazing. And I always say I've got the best audience in podcasting. And I really do. It's you and me along for this ride. And I'm so grateful for you guys. All right, coming up later today, we are going to have some fun. Uh, We're going to deal with some big topics here in a second in the Monica Memo. But later, we're actually going to have some laughs because... As I always say, these are dark moments, and if we don't laugh, we cry, and there is no crying on the Monica Crowley podcast. So today, we are going to laugh with the one and only Ami Kozak, who is a fantastic comedian, very funny. He's got a live show coming up next week in New York City. He's going to tell us all about that. Very well known on social media, on TikTok and Instagram for his impressions, including my favorite impression that he does which is Prince Harry. He is going to give us a little bit of his woke Prince Harry. Not to be missed. He also does a fierce Jordan Peterson, Dave Ramsey. Very, very funny stuff. Ami Kozak coming up here later today. Also, later in the week, we're going to be joined by Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna, who is one of the top like five fighters in the house. We're going to deal with Matt Gates here in a second. Thank God for him. Anna Paulina Luna. She's like 10 years old. I'm exaggerating, but not by much. This woman is, I think she's the youngest member of Congress. I could be wrong about that, but she is an America first warrior She fights around the clock. The woman literally just gave birth to her first child, and she is out there on the ramparts every single day fighting for this country. Anna Paulina Luna, I admire her so much. She's going to join us here on Thursday. Coming up next week, Liz Wheeler is going to join us, and the phenomenal actor John Schneider is going to be here as well. Bo Duke from the Dukes of Hazzard, come on. How many of us grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard? Whether it was in the original turn or in syndication, Bo Duke. Okay, I think I did have a, a poster of John Schneider as Bo Duke on my bedroom wall. I'm just saying. So I may have to fangirl out next week, and that is not something that you are going to want to miss. <laughs> I promise you that. Also, coming up later on, later in the month on this show, Dinesh D'Souza, who has a new film coming called Police State. And it is about the weaponization of government against us. He is going to join us, talk about this film. You're not going to want to miss that as well. So, big Monica Crowley podcast coming up. You're not going to want to miss a second of it. Tell everyone you know, friends, family, colleagues, people at church, people at synagogue, wherever you may be, tell them about this show because nobody wants FOMO if you're missing out. And if you're not listening to this show, you're going to have FOMO. So save your loved ones from FOMO. Tell them to subscribe, listen, and share the Monica Crowley podcast. All right, first up, the Monica memo. Welcome to the Hunger Games, Congress edition. We got a couple of different elements here of the Congress-style Hunger Games. Let's deal first with the Democrats, shall we? Democrats were so desperate to delay a spending bill with no spending for Ukraine that one of them pulled the fire alarm. New York Democrat Jamal Bowman, who represents, I believe, part of Queens, as someone who's bringing this show to you today from New York City, pray for me. 
I am telling you that Jamal Bowman is right up there with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in terms of radicalism. This guy is like full-blown communist, Jamal Bowman. So they, uh, the, the theory here is that Bowman pulled the fire alarm because he wanted to delay the vote. The Democrats were trying to delay the vote. The vote had no money for Ukraine. They were all freaking out because they wanted to shut down the government over Ukraine, not over America's borders, not over American uh, funding for things happening here, but they wanted to shut down the government over a foreign country in the middle of a fight that's not our fight. So they wanted to delay the fight, and the, the theory here is he pulled the fire alarm in order to, to delay that vote. Now, Bowman's excuse is, well, gosh, golly, I didn't realize it was a fire alarm. Children from the age of three are taught about basic safety measures, including, like, once you go to preschool, the fire alarm. On top of it, Jamal Bowman had been a school principal for what, eight or 10 years? And there are pictures all over his uh, social media of him as a school principal with the FDNY, the fire department of New York City, standing near fire alarms. So of course this excuse is a flat out lie. It is absurd. Nobody believes it. It is ridiculous. But of course he's going to get away with it because he's a Democrat. Now, Capitol Police are apparently, quote, investigating this because there are additional photos up uh, of that door where he pulled the fire alarm, which went off, covered in signage that says emergency exit only. Do not exit. There are like 15 signs plastered on the door in front of the door. So, I mean, come on. Everybody knows this is absurd. But the Capitol Police are, quote, looking into this. Keep in mind, this is the same Capitol Police who helped usher in January 6th protesters that day. And the same Capitol Police, one of whom shot Ashley Babbitt at point-blank range and killed her, even though she did not pose a threat. The same Capitol Police who allowed Roseanne Boylan to die in front of them right outside the door of the Capitol. Yeah, that Capitol Police. So Jamal Bowman, of course, will skate because that's how corrupt our system is. Uh, Also, we've seen the still picture of him pulling the fire alarm, but not the video because that's what they're going to do. They're going to bury the video the same way that they have buried the January 6th tapes. So Jamal Bowman, a sitting member of Congress who obstructed an official proceeding, which is the basis for so many of the charges against these January 6th defendants obstructing an official proceeding, uh, and so many of them are getting the book thrown at them years in jail for that, including some, by the way, who weren't even present at the Capitol that day. But Jamal Bowman is going to skate for actually obstructing an official proceeding because that's how corrupt we are. That's how corrupt the system is. That's how rotten it is. By the way, Jamal Bowman uh, fashions himself, and I say this as a New Yorker because I'm immersed in all these headlines about these local members of Congress all the time. Again, pray for me. Jamal Bowman fashions himself as a Marxist revolutionary. Literally makes no qualms about that. You know how AOC runs around like, I'm a Democrat socialist, Bernie Sanders too. Well, Bowman is more aggressive. He's like, yeah, I'm a communist. So So because he fashions himself a Marxist revolutionary, pulling the fire alarm to cause chaos to endanger life, to obstruct an official proceeding is totally on brand. Moving on to the Republicans and their version of the Hunger Games Congress edition. Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Matt Gates have now entered the chat. 
Gates has just filed, he did this yesterday, he filed an official motion to vacate the chair to oust McCarthy from the speakership. Uh, This comes after McCarthy has failed to deliver on a series of promises related to these spending bills, but also, and we're going to get to this little list here of things that McCarthy agreed to and promised Gates and that group of, what, 20, 21 holdout Republicans back in January. We covered this extensively on the show. Maybe you want to go back and listen to those shows because McCarthy had to agree to a list of things promises on what he would deliver to change business as usual in Washington, or at least in the House of Representatives, in order to get the speakership. He agreed to those, and Gates and these others are saying, hold up, hold up, you haven't abided by your promises. Now, on these spending negotiations and this continuing resolution in particular, this is the the final straw for Gates and his crew. This year alone, the United States is running a record-breaking $2 trillion deficit. And we're running up against a $33 trillion plus national debt. $33 trillion plus. No country in the history of the world has carried this kind of debt load and survived. That debt clock is flying. I actually can't look at it. You know, there are some things that sometimes you just, you can't even look at. You you can't, like for me, I I have a very difficult time looking at the footage from the border because it it arises in me such an emotional response, like a sick to my stomach, like I'm going to physically be sick. I'm going to throw up if I continue to watch this. It is the same reaction I have when I look at that debt clock that is flying. So Gates and about 21 other Republicans have been doing the Lord's work in trying to stop the out-of-control government spending and redirect some of these resources where they are desperately needed, like the border, while stopping these resources from being wasted where they don't belong, like Ukraine. Here's Gates. It is going to be difficult for my Republican friends to keep calling President Biden feeble while he continues to take Speaker McCarthy's lunch money in every negotiation. The Speaker of the House has responded to these reports of a secret side deal on money for Ukraine, opaquely stating that he still wants to fund Ukraine and our border. I have a few replies to this statement. First, the Speaker's statement confirms the existence of a secret deal. And I have talked to members of our own leadership who have said they didn't even know that Speaker McCarthy was negotiating a secret side deal outside of our conference, outside of his own leadership team, for the sake of Ukraine. Amen, my brother. Amen. Gates is trying to change Washington. In fact, he tweeted that very tweet. I am trying to change Washington. I think it's got like 40,000 likes already. I am trying to change Washington. Yes. And for his troubles, Gates is facing a move to oust him. It's always the heroes, right? It's always the heroes that they try to move against because the heroes are such a threat to the corrupt system. So he's got a challenge too in the House to try to remove him. He's also earned the revilement of many of his colleagues, including fellow Republicans. Sound familiar? Yeah, Donald Trump. We're going to get to him in a moment too. It's always the singular figures who stand up to the corruption that just get the pile on. They get the pile on, and thank God they're made of strong stuff because the weaker men and women cave, and this is why we are where we are in this country, right? So Gates is out there constantly reminding McCarthy that he became speaker because he agreed to a series of rules that those holdouts were pushing for. 
which included any single House member to introduce a motion to vacate the Speaker if that Speaker did not make good on their agreements and their promises. So Gates and these other Republicans are accusing McCarthy of not keeping his promises to them and to, more importantly, to us, to the American people, and they now want him gone. Here is Gates. Listen. So, so when, when do you make this move? Uh, you'll be seeing it this week. This week, okay. That's why now, I came on the show this now, week. Now, now look, it, it takes only one person, obviously, you, uh, to, to call for a vote uh, to remove him, so-called uh, motion to vacate. But you would need a majority to remove him, which means you're going to need de- Democrats to remove him. Do you really think that Democrats are going to vote to remove Kevin McCarthy because he made a deal with Democrats? No. I actually think Democrats are going to bail out Kevin McCarthy. Gates is not doing this for himself. He's not doing it for his health. He's doing it for us, and he's doing it for the country, period, straight up. And, of course, the the pile-on from everybody, all of the establishment Republicans. Of course, the Democrats are loving every second of this. But Gates, I mean, he's like Trump. The cheese stands alone. Here are the promises that McCarthy made in order to receive the 20 Republican holdout votes for the speakership back in January. One, to allow a single lawmaker to make a motion to elect a new speaker, returning to the way the House ran for decades before the former speaker, Nancy Pelosi, eliminated that rule. Okay, this is the motion to vacate. He agreed to. Two, to vote on term limits. Three, to adopt a budget resolution that balances the budget in 10 years, puts a cap on fiscal 2024 spending at fiscal 2022 levels, which, by the way, is still an out-of-control level of spending. Ultimately, they want to get back to at least 2019 pre-COVID levels. So what Gates and the others are asking for is not out of the ordinary or, or extreme in any way. They're just asking to go to pre-COVID levels of spending. And that the promise that McCarthy made was just, okay, we'll get there, but let me just promise to take us to 2022 levels. I mean, guys, okay, these are tiny baby steps that Gates and the others have been asking for. What the hell? Four, to reject negotiations on spending with the Senate until the Senate passed its own spending bills so we could see what the Senate was doing. Five, not to increase the debt limit without spending cuts or other fiscal reforms. That's a big one. That's a big one. Haven't really seen that. Six, to set up a committee to examine the weaponization of government against U.S. citizens. Seven, to ensure no bills are brought up on the floor until at least 72 hours have passed, meaning three days to actually read legislation. Don't know why that's an extreme thing. Eight single subject spending bills. Yes. So you can see exactly what is going to Homeland Security and the border, right? Instead of one massive omnibus thing where they shove 8 million things and all kinds of earmarks in there. Exactly. Again, all of this stuff, all of this stuff is common sense. Uh, but we're talking about the government here. Nine, going back to pre-COVID spending, as I just identified. Okay, so some of these things have already been done, like the term limits vote, which did go down in flames because none of these people are going to vote to to remove themselves from office after, you know, four, six, eight years, whatever the, the case may be. Gates voted for it, but, you know, the others didn't. So the vote did not succeed, but at least they had the vote. And they're all on the record as wanting to be in office forever. So now everybody can see that, okay? Also, we do have a committee on the weaponization of government. So some of these things have been delivered. But many of them, especially related to the spending part, have not been done. Nor, by the way, has McCarthy released the January 6th tapes, which he also promised to do. These House conservatives have pushed for 12 single-subject appropriations bills that would result in about $120 billion in spending cuts. This is what McCarthy agreed to in January, okay? 
but to avoid a shutdown because everybody's afraid of a shutdown. And, you know, the whole thing is so sickening, the whole kabuki theater of them running around with their hair on fire at the last minute on a Saturday night before midnight, and there's no money for Ukraine. So Michael Bennett in the Senate, a Democrat, was threatening the whole thing because let's shut it all down for Ukraine and Zelensky and his tutu. Okay, so they needed to avoid the shutdown. They needed a continuing resolution. The whole thing is so sickening, and it's so predictable, and it's so tedious. But they did pass this uh, late Saturday. It's a 45-day bill, so of course it sets up another shutdown showdown on November 17th if the House and the Democrat-led Senate cannot agree on the spending levels for the rest of this fiscal year, which of course is not going to happen. So we're going to go through the whole pantomime again uh, on midnight on November 17th, and my guess is it'll be another punt. Our leadership is a joke except for Gates and this handful of people actually standing up and doing the right thing. Now, Gates claims that if Kevin McCarthy keeps his speakership, it's because he made a deal with the Democrats to keep that job. But McCarthy is accusing Gates of trying to work with the Democrats in order to oust him as well over the already, you know, long-dismissed ethics charges against Gates, which have been fully investigated and dismissed, okay? So this is a cluster, and it is, uh, it's just so, it's so tedious to watch this and to watch a great power like the United States commit suicide in real time with only a handful of people like Gates standing up. I am with Gates. I I know there's a lot of back and forth, like my friend Mark Levin is like criticizing Gates and there's all this pile on, on, on all sides, okay? But I am with Matt Gates. We're going to have him as a guest on this show. It was already supposed to happen, but all of this drama on Capitol Hill, we are going to have Gates on this show. I'm with Gates and his band of America First populace on this one. Somebody has to take a stand, guys. We cannot go on like this. Enough with business as usual. I mean, at some point, the laws of economics are going to kick in, and we're no longer going to be able to go on like this. So right now, I make the argument we cannot go on like this, but at some point, the laws of economics are going to say, no, you can't. Hyperinflation total economic collapse, you're going to have no choice but to deal with it. And the economic pain and the implosion that we are going to see, oh my gosh, it's going to make like the past couple of recessions, the major financial crisis, it's going to look like a walk in the park. We cannot go on like this. And at some point it is going to stop. So Matt Gates is a hero for trying to take this on before we are forced to stop. Gates is also a hero for taking on the uni party over their most valuable asset, your money, the nation's money, the nation's future. Our friend Natalie Winters broke a story today, and she's got it up on Twitter Former Democrat congressman turned lobbyist Jim Moran just added the Ukrainian government as a client for $25,000 per month. The letter outlining their agreement, she says, and she's got it up on Twitter, she got the actual letter, Moran Global Strategies, Inc. This is what they do. They leave Congress, they become lobbyists, and then lobbyists for foreign governments to make killing She says the letter outlining their agreement, and she's got it up there, says funds will come from a virtually untraceable Ukrainian nonprofit called Ukraine Freedom. And then she asks the question, is Ukraine aid from U.S. taxpayers just being funneled back to D.C. elites? 
Well, of course, the entire Ukraine war is a vast money laundering operation for all of these people, which is why they were willing to shut down the government in order to secure additional billions for Ukraine, because they all have their hands in the till. This is how corrupt it is. And so Matt Gates is standing up to the uni party and trying to pull the brakes on their most valuable asset, your money, the nation's money, the nation's future. So good for him. History will treat him well for being willing to stand up to the Leviathan and say, no more. Enough. I don't know how this is all going to shake out. And we will certainly watch it over the next days and weeks. But I must say, the fact that all of the uni party's firepower is trained on him, all of it, that tells you that he is right over the target. Thank God for Matt Gates. Now, there is one aspect to this that I want to raise. The GOP is at war with itself. McCarthy versus Gates, those are the two sort of, uh, those are the two gladiators in the Coliseum right now, but it's even bigger than them. It's the establishment versus the populists, right? It's Trump versus McConnell or uh, Trump versus the uni party as well. And now this is all very personal too. So, look, I believe that this is all necessary. These are important and necessary fights. The only point here is that the parties are stronger when they're unified, even when, or especially when, the unity must be enforced. Nancy Pelosi was a master of this. She ruled with an iron fist. Nothing and no one got around her. She enforced total party unity. Nobody ever dared to break ranks, ever. They all fell in line on every policy, on every vote. It was quite admirable, actually, and still is. Now, Hakeem Jeffries, who replaced Pelosi, he is no Nancy Pelosi, But he doesn't need to be, because the Democrats have muscle memory on walking in lockstep. They just automatically do it. And it also helps to have a leader of your party who is where the voters are. And if if not where your voters are, then somebody who has the full force to enforce party discipline. Kevin McCarthy does not represent the America First Republican base. He is totally disconnected from that. And he does not really have the strength to enforce party unity and discipline the way Pelosi did. So we have the worst of both worlds in Kevin McCarthy in the speakership. It's not personal for me. I like Kevin McCarthy. He's a nice man. But this is a war. And our side just doesn't have the leadership apart from Donald Trump, does not, on on Capitol Hill, just does not, except for Matt Gaetz and Matt Rosendale and Lauren Boebert. And, you know, there are others. Andy Ogles, who was just on the show, what, last week, the week before? There are a few fighters. But whereas the Democrats have a monolithic front in their fight, our fight is all over the place. Our side is actually healthier because we have these debates out in the open, messy, real democracy. But the left knows you are only as strong as your weakest link. So they keep all the links strong by keeping them all together, tightly bound. Our side, not so much. So while these battles are necessary and they will strengthen us in the longer term, we can't think that they're strengthening us in the moment. We have to go through them 
and hope that they give others in the GOP conference a backbone going forward, although I'm not confident about that. I thought that Trump would give everybody a backbone because he was taking all of the uh, incoming. He was doing all the political blocking for every other Republican, and so many of them just ran for the hills anyway. So I'm not entirely confident about that, but it should not just be Matt Gates and a handful of others fighting these fights. But we have to start somewhere with a small band of brave fighters. We got Trump on one side, we got Matt Gates on the other. And it's like the 300 Spartans going up against the tens of thousands of Persians. Matt Gates is Leonidas. Speaking of Leonidas, President Donald J. Trump, back in court yesterday for this New York uh, fraud trial brought by the incredibly radical uh, state attorney general here, Letitia James, who, of course, ran on, quote, getting Trump. The judge in this case is a complete uh, radical uh, communist, basically. So, of course, you know, in none of these cases is Trump going to get a fair shake. None of them. Maybe the Florida case, maybe but even that's highly debatable. Um, But I mean, going up against this radical judge, you just take one look at this guy and you're like, okay. I mean, he looks like, he looks like your standard issue Marxist professor at Columbia university. And I say this as somebody who went through Columbia university and had these Marxist professors. So I know what I'm talking about. This guy is never going to give Donald Trump a fair shake. They did not have the option of a jury trial. So this is a judge trial. So it's all in his hands with his discretion. It's a nightmare. Trump showed up yesterday, showed up today. He's sitting there uh, glaring at everybody. Uh, Letitia James is sitting behind him, glaring at him. The judge was preening for the cameras, you know, like, ready for my, my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Smiling and everything. I, the whole thing is an absolute Stalinist show trial. It is a disgrace that is happening in America. Every institution has been taken over, including our judiciary. And honestly, guys, thank God for Trump's uh, four years in office. Hopefully he'll have another four because he was able to remake the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is literally what the country is hanging on. That's it. All these other courts and judges and everything else corrupted. Once the Supreme Court goes down, that's it. You have no country. And even the Supreme Court right now is a little shaky. So Trump came out of court and he made this statement yesterday. Listen. This is a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundred, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show who ran on the basis that she was going to get Trump before she even knew anything about me. She used this to run for governor. She failed in her attempt to run for governor. She had virtually no polling. She came back and she said, well, now I'll go back to get Trump again. And this is what we have. It's a scam. It's a sham. Yes, he is exactly right. And the fact he has to go through this charade is just unbelievable. You got Jamal Bowman obstructing an official proceeding by pulling a fire alarm. He's going to skate. But Donald Trump, who literally did nothing wrong, has to sit there in court with all of these communist clowns bearing down on him. The only good thing that's maybe somewhat promising is that uh, Letitia James and her case referred to events in 2011 Um, But the statute of limitations means anything after 2014, I believe. So she says she can prove and bring the cases forward or whatever she's going to do. But Trump was saying 80% of this case is what they're saying happened in 2011 out of the statute of limitations. We will see what happens here. Whatever happens, he is being railroaded and everybody knows it. Okay. Everybody knows it. This is where we are in America, guys. Um, It's pretty grim. But when we come back after this quick break, 
we're actually going to have some laughs and lighten it up a bit with a great comedian named Ami Kozak. You're not going to want to miss a second of it. He's going to bring you some levity, some laughs, and Prince Harry. Sit tight. Okay, well, as you guys know, we cover a lot of heavy subjects on this show out of necessity because the country is on fire. The world is on fire, too. So, of course, we have to cover the tough stuff, but we all need a break once in a while because otherwise we'll all go crazy. If we don't laugh, we'll cry, and there is no crying in baseball or on the Monica Crowley podcast. Here to help us make make us laugh today is a fantastic comedian and musician who I discovered on Instagram. And I told him this when I was booking uh, him for the show, that one day he just popped up in my Instagram feed and I literally laughed out loud, which is rare for me. I'll, I'll chuckle, I may giggle, but when I saw his feed, I laughed out loud and I've been following him ever since. Ami Kozak is the host of the Buckle Up podcast and he can be found on the aforementioned Instagram at Ami Kozak underscore official, A-M-I-K-O-Z-A-K underscore official, Ami Kozak underscore official. He can also be found at J Sketch Comedy on Instagram as well. Ami is going to be the headliner at Stand Up New York Comedy Club in New York City on October 10th. So go to StandUpNY.com to get your tickets now if you're going to be in the New York City area. And I am so happy that he is here with us today. Ami, welcome. Good to be with you, Monica. Thank you so much for the kind words. Well, well deserved. And this is so much fun for me, too, because as I said, I found you on Instagram a couple of months ago, and you've given me so many laughs. Um, <laughs> and these are dark times for the country. And it's always nice to come across your Instagram and, and your brilliant impressions and your brilliant comedy. So I'm just so thankful that you're here. Honored. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, you are, as I mentioned, multi-talented. You are a comedian, uh, you're a musician, you're a composer and a producer. So I guess you really let your parents down, huh? You're a real low achiever. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I come from an interesting, uh, you know, modern Orthodox Jewish community, and there's not that many people that go out of the kind of traditional routes of uh, doctor, lawyer, real estate, and therefore to do stuff in the creative endeavors was a little bit of an out there decision, but thank God my parents were always very kind of supportive of my, uh, of my uh, pursuits. They always, even as a young child, had me standing on tables doing impressions and bits and stuff. So they indulged it. So I'm grateful for that. Well, there is a long tradition of Jewish comedy. I mean, one of my all-time favorites is Mel Brooks, who, of course, is still with us. Um, But, of course, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, and Woody Allen, you know, the, the sort of New York... Uh, that Jewish culture informing a lot of observational humor, which is part of what you do as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jews have always been able to laugh through tragedy, laugh through pain, laugh at themselves. It's the only way we can kind of get through it. So we've developed a, a thick skin as a as a community. And, you know, the, the sanctity of humor, of, of jokes, is something that I think, you know, I certainly take pretty seriously and grew up around, you know, so... Well, kind of embedded. 40 years in the desert will give you a good sense of humor. At least we hope so. And you certainly have that gift for sure. You are uh, on social media. Um, you're really well known for your impressions. And that's what caught my eye, including my favorite, Prince Harry, um, which I am going to have you do later in this conversation. Um, you know, I am obsessed with the royal family. I was a Diana maniac growing up. I'm still a Diana maniac. And now I am completely obsessed with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, probably not in a healthy way, Ami. Okay. So I, at night, when I am done with the news and I need to just like wind down, I literally take my phone to bed, which is not a good idea. I do not recommend that to anybody. But I follow a couple of like Harry and Meghan gossip sites on Twitter and Instagram. And I just, I like doom scroll through the latest gossip. So when I saw your Prince Harry impression, it was so brilliant that I thought you were British. (laughs) 
<laughs> because I didn't, I didn't see any other uh, part of your feet at that point. I thought you were British because you were that good. So we're going to get to these impressions in a second, but I do want to start with your background. How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What kind of values were you raised with? Right. So as I mentioned before, I grew up in a, uh, I grew up as a modern Orthodox Jew on the East Coast uh, in New Jersey um, and went to private Jewish day schools growing up. And my earliest uh, ventures into entertaining was just doing impressions of teachers and people in the community. I always just had a knack for kind of hearing somebody and watching somebody and being able to recreate it. Um, it, it was just sort of like a light switch that I started to turn on as a young child, you know, imitating people and getting a reaction. And I think that's probably how I taught myself how to sing as well. I, I also am a musician. I do that professionally as well. Um, and my early days learning how to sing was just mimicking and copying other singers. I would notice the, you know, different attributes of how they would do things and the timbre and pitch and tone. So developing a musical ear as well helped refine my impressions and impersonation skills. Uh, but my professionally, I did music for the for a very long time, and for the last you know ten plus years, I was you know in the music industry pretty actively doing music for film and TV. I have a band called Distant Cousins, and we perform all over, uh, doing original music. And it wasn't until social media that I found this outlet for broadcasting the sort of my other neglected child, which was comedy. You know, I didn't really have an outlet for that. I was busy really pursuing music professionally and doing music for film and TV and composing, as you mentioned before. So then with TikTok and Instagram, I was kind of early-ish to TikTok. I just started saying, you know, let me use this as an opportunity. I, I was posting musical stuff there as well, but throwing up impressions of all sorts of various people. And then uh, the rest is history. Once I started doing that consistently, I found this whole audience enjoying, uh, you know, Everybody from Gary Vaynerchuk to Jordan Peterson to Prince Harry to, uh, you know, the whole, you know, the, the sort of the rest is history in terms of being able to find an amazing uh, audience online. Doing impressions. It's so brilliant. I mean, social media has really given all of you so many talented people on social media, a real platform and a reach right. that you otherwise wouldn't have. Right. Where are you on TikTok? I don't do TikTok because it's a Chinese communist surveillance tool. Right. Um, so I do not have it on my phone, but I understand the rest of the world does. Where can people find you there? Well, Xi Jinping loves my Prince Harry. too. <laughs> oh, so I'm in good company. Yeah, he DM'd me. He was like, ha ha, so funny. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, on TikTok, same username across the board. It's AJ Comedy is the handle, Ami Kozak official on Instagram, and AJ Comedy on YouTube and TikTok. Okay, so guys, if you're on TikTok, please go check him out there as well. You know, yeah, Ami. If you're on TikTok and you don't care about your privacy, go check me out on TikTok. Right, so when the US and China go to war, you'll be the first ones uh, that the Chinese will target. I'll be at the back of the line. But anyway, <laughs> good luck with that. At least you'll have Ami's comedy on your phone as the Chinese are taking over your whole life. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of comedians say that when they were a little kid and, and you say that your parents used to prop you up on a table and make you perform. But a lot of them say, you know, when that was happening to them when they were small, they would say or do something that would make people laugh. And once once you get bitten by that comedy bug, there's no turning back. Was that the case with you, too? Making people laugh is just so gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole leap from doing it socially to doing it professionally. You know, when you're when you're on stage uh, at, the, you know, performing comedy, that's slightly a different craft and a different process. But it all starts from that initial. Wow. Look how powerful this is. You know, making people laugh. There's just there's nothing like that feeling. And I had developed that socially, you know, within my peer groups over the years for a long time. But to make the jump professionally, that I really attribute to being able to have the platform of, uh, of social media as a way to broadcast it, to have my own little channel to cultivate a community and an audience. And then uh, diving, you know, I've been performing on stage as a musician for 15 years and I was comfortable in that arena. But now making the jump into standup has been an exciting new frontier of, uh, you know, incorporating everything that I do on uh, in the form of standup. Uh, so that's been that's been a lot of fun, too. You know, doing standup and it's often said I have never done it nor will I ever, probably. Um, but a lot of people say doing stand-up has to be one of the most terrifying things uh, because you're just out there in a raw kind of way 
in a way that's different than, say, performing music on stage, whether solo or part of a group, because people are either laughing or they're not, and you're either getting energy back directly from that audience or you're not. Um, When you first started, were you petrified? Yes. I I mean, stand-up, for a whole host of reasons, is is somewhat unique in the performing arts in that like you said, you know, with music, if somebody doesn't like a song and they space out for the song, whatever, you know, you don't take it personally. Stand up is one of the ones that people confuse with being one of the most personal, where if you, they reject a joke, the audience, like you really, it almost is they're, they're rejecting you. If somebody doesn't like an acting role that you played, they don't like the role. If somebody doesn't like a song that you play, they don't like the song, but they're not rejecting you. And the same is true of stand up. If somebody doesn't like the joke, they're not. They're really rejecting the joke, but to them and to you, it's interpreted as they're rejecting you personally. So it can sting in a way that other forms of rejection from the entertainer to audience standpoint doesn't. So you're getting up there and, you know, music and other forms of entertainment sort of have a little bit of armor around them. There's a little bit of mystique. Not everybody can sort of understand what's going on musically, but everybody knows if they're laughing or if they're not. People are their own little experts when it comes to if a joke was funny or not, because it's sort of involuntary. You know, music is a little more forgiving in that way. I would say at the highest levels, there's a lot more similarity than difference because of rhythm and timing and dynamics when you're in a comfortable flow on stage. There's a lot of things that, are, that I can make comparisons to in terms of performing music or comedy or other things. But yes, yeah, stand-up, you are exposed and you, it's the most combative. You know, it's you, in a sense, versus the audience. You're pun- you're, that's why they call it, I think, you know, punchlines. You're like almost boxing, trying to nail your jokes. And if you get a hit, you've made contact, you've engaged, everybody laughs. If you miss, I think the experienced comedian can maneuver through that and, you know, recover. But, you know... You uh, you are exposed and you're walking a tightrope. And, you know, if you hit a wrong note in a song, people get maybe a little bit, you know, a little bit irritated, but they don't get offended. You hit a wrong note in a joke and there's another risk factor involved in that the material, depending on what you're doing, can actually get people angry. No one's going to stand up and protest if you hit a wrong note in a song, but saying the wrong thing in a joke to be misinterpreted. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a different form of combat and uh, it's it has its. It has its terrifying moments, but with exposure therapy, like anything else, the more you do something, the more you can get comfortable with it and figure out your way and maneuver your way around. You know, it takes years and years and years. So it's just reps. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. Not that you ever do, but what happens if you bomb? How do you handle that on stage? Well, yeah, the bombing, that's the other part of comedy versus other art forms that I've noticed, you know, coming from the music world. In music, you bomb in private. You know, you practice your songs before they're ready, and you do it before anybody's watching you. But the only way to really get good at comedy, especially stand-up comedy particularly, is by bombing in front of people and practicing and rehearsing your material in front of people and really like, you know, a sculpture, like working out all the, you know, trimming the fat in front and seeing what works and what doesn't work. Um, it's you sort of just, I think, Bill Burr, one set on stage plowing right ahead you know you, you <laughs> have to you yeah. accept the defeat and you know you can kind of you can make sometimes the best moments in a stand-up set come from a bomb that recovers so if you you know this you sometimes you just have to eat it you know you're like wow that was unpleasant and you you don't say it out you internalize that and say and, and i think it's a healthy psychological approach is to say it's not that they rejected me or that i'm not funny or that I suck. It's that the joke didn't work. I have to refine this joke. I have to tweak it and make it better. And that's what the audience is telling you, that you're running an experiment. Some things work, some things don't work. And then in the end, you know, you, you can come off of a bomb and uh, you can turn it on to the audience. You can turn it into a joke in an improvisational way by acknowledging what happened and sometimes, you know, being self-aware because the audience does want you to succeed. So being confident in what has happened and self-aware can make a funnier moment than you even intended. I've had moments in sets where, you know, something funnier happened from something that was unanticipated. But, you know, it's a combination. It, it does just happen and you, it's a part of the game and it's just information. If you take it that way at face value, that's just information. Then, um, then uh, you know, then you, then you just plow right ahead. So there are two big risks to doing stand-up, as far as I can see. Maybe there are more, but obviously bombing, you know, having a joke or a series of jokes that just don't work, and it's a really uncomfortable moment for you on stage, but also for the audience, too, you know, looking at each other nervously, like, what do we do? This this person isn't funny. But the other more serious risk is being canceled. 
that you tell a joke that is perceived, fairly or not, as being offensive in some way, word gets out. So social media is a great thing to get you uh, a real platform and get you a following, but it can be a curse as well because somebody picks it up, it's amplified, and then that's the end of you, right? So my question to you is, what, what do you make of the state of comedy right now? Jerry Seinfeld, other big names, um, really out there bemoaning cancel culture. They say wokeness is killing comedy. Seinfeld won't perform on college campuses anymore. He's too afraid. Now, there are some like Dave Chappelle, Roseanne Barr, Rob Schneider, Joe Rogan. Uh, Rogan just opened a comedy club where it's safe to do whatever material you want. But what what's your view of where comedy is right now? Generally, I think that you know, I think the cancel culture and all the wokeness that's going on kind of permeating you know, media or entertainment, it's a real thing, but I don't think it's really representative of a majority. I think there's a silent majority that actually still enjoys a good joke, a good offensive joke, knows it's a joke. It's just that there's a loud minority uh, of the protest culture and the cancel culture that makes it seem like it's overrepresentative of how most people feel. Thankfully, I don't think it's how most people feel. And if you look at the track record, those who have been canceled either actually did actions that were that were wrong or they walked the plank and apologized for something they didn't mean. They gave an insincere apology and you've apologized to the mob for something a publicist puts out, you know, you put it in the form of that. I know it's a teachable moment and I regret my statements and it, I will take this to heart. You know, those people get canceled. Mm-hmm. The people who don't are the people who don't allow themselves to be canceled because they know it's nonsense and they know that they were joking and they know where their intentions are. And generally that authenticity, I think, goes further. It's obviously, un- I-, I haven't experienced it, but, you know, there's certainly an unpleasantness to it. But um, you wait it out and those people always tend to come back stronger and with bigger, larger, more loyal audiences than they had before cancellation. Yeah. And there's a real lesson in there. Don't cave, never bend the knee to the bullies because when you push back, bullies generally fold and they they do that in the case of comedy as well, just like politics and and everything else. Jordan Peterson had said on one podcast with Joe Rogan, when he was undergoing it, you know, he, he allowed, he basically said like, you know, it's unpleasant, you know, and what he should do is, just wait it out a little bit, a little bit. And then, you know, you know, Joe, Joe's a tough guy, man. You know, he'll come back stronger than ever. You'll see. And he was right. <laughs> I want more Jordan Peterson in a second. Let's give the people what they want here, Ami, which is some of your brilliant impressions. The aforementioned Prince Harry. Again, as a royal family aficionado um, and a harsh critic of both the woke dope Prince Harry, and his toxic nightmare of a wife, Meghan Markle. Your impression of Harry is absolutely spot on. So will you give us some, please? Well, actually, that's hurtful because you just call my family names and the way you talked about M. I mean, that was clearly a digger M, Monica. And for someone with a first first name M, I think you should be more sympathetic. (laughs) Because it's clearly a digger M. And it's not just Meghan. It's Monica's. It's Mary's. It's anyone with M in their name. Ah, there's clearly an unconscious bias, not just to my wife, but with any woman with the name that starts with M. I really believe that. And I love my brother and I love my family, but it's hurtful. (laughs) Well, you know, Prince Harry, you are uh, coming after me for calling you names, but haven't you spent the last, what, two years calling your own family the worst kinds of names, including racist? I didn't say that. I said they were racist-ish. That's the difference. There's certainly on certainly the British press will have you believe that I called them racist through leaks, but I didn't say that. I said they were exhibiting unconscious bias, and there's a difference. And we certainly need to modernize the conversation. Modernize me and my family. Modernize the conversation. What does that mean to you exactly, Prince Harry? It means that you know words and phrases that are ancient need to be brought into a modern context. Did your wife educate you on this score? Very much. Actually, you know, it was, uh, was, we were on, we were on a trip in Maui and it was very hard because the hotel double booked our reservation and it was clearly unconscious bias. 
Um, there was another couple there. They were white. They, uh, they had paid in advance. We expected to just walk in without a reservation, and they would give us a room. So it's clearly unconscious bias. But um, we spent the whole time on the beach, and she was educating me on, you know, we were reading Abraham X. Candy by the shore. It was wonderful. <laughs> Is that your idea of a romantic evening? Oh, yes, yes. Long, you know, walks on the beach, some wine, and how to be an anti-racist. There's nothing better. You sound fun. Mm, it's, it's, it was a blasty blast. I will tell you that. And I, after the, the, the vacation that we took, we came back to Buckingham Palace, and we had, they asked how our honeymoon was. It was a trip for our honeymoon. They are, and we told them, you know, we, we modernized the conversation. That's what we did. <laughs> I'm sure they took that very well. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I got frostbite on my todger, but it was otherwise. <laughs> well, you have to do that in, in Hawaii, but we, we went to see a, a sunrise. It was very cold, and I wrote about it in my book, Spa. But it was, it was a dangerous time for me and my family. Well, are you still communicating with your family? How is that going? I was very hurtful, but I love my brother, and I love my family. But every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll send a meme via WhatsApp of uh, Ibram X. Candy. I'm sure your brother loves that. Yes, yes. William and Kate, I've been sending them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they, really, they appreciate that. Most of my texts these days are just snippets of paragraphs from White Fragility. <laughs> um, do you ever reflect on your choice to leave your family, uh, flee the UK, come to the United States. I mean, your brother, uh, and I know you've had your differences, but your brother someday is going to be king. And where will you be? How, how will you be left? I will still be a refugee in Montecito. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like for us now. We understand the plight of refugees around the world because that's what we are. Rejected by our homeland, kicked out, and... It's a dangerous time for me. Probably the most dangerous. We're in the most danger of anyone around the world. So it's very helpful. But <laughs> when he's king, I'll be sure to send him at the coronation a copy of White Fragility. <laughs> that will be your gift to him for the coronation when he becomes king? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Mm. I'll, be I'm... I'll be holding it at the ceremony. <laughs> I'm sure uh, then King William will have pride of place on a shelf for white fragility. Um, Ami, is he, he's just such a comedy-rich target, is he not? Um, yeah, I'll be honest. Like, I don't have such a stake in the royal family stuff. I don't follow the drama maybe as closely as you do, but it showed up on my feed. And oftentimes the way I come across impressions, I'm like, oh, this is funny. And yeah, look, I, I, I actually think it, it, the, the thing, my whole take, take on it is this. You know, to be a royal, you're put in a hard place because you don't really have free choice in a sense. Like you're born into an obligatory position. So if they wanted to remove their royal titles and leave, like I get that. I don't think that deserves too much scrutiny. But it's when they try to ride the wave of being oppressed. That's when I think people turn on them as like to ride this sort of woke modern narrative that they're also oppressed. And, you know, I think that's that's where it gets uh questionable and kind of you know ripe with uh easy to kind of make fun of it's like no 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 it's like you know they wanted to know what gender the baby would be can you believe that (laughs) it's like you know you can definitely say that it's you know there's a whole world that you live in that's that has its challenges and that you don't have a personal life and you don't have a a life of choices the way regular folk do of as to what you want to do or you don't have your own agency if they were to just talk about that and that struggle, I think maybe people would be more sympathetic. It's when they try to get on board that like every single, you know, encounter has become racialized. It, it's just like, ugh, it's tedious. Like, yeah, no, just people start to say like, I'm sorry. Like it's a little, it, you know, I, I don't think it's as compelling and I'm not after, I'm not out to destroy them or I have nothing really against it. It doesn't affect my life, but jokes are jokes. So. I go for what's funny to me, and that is kind of funny, you know. I put on sunscreen. Do you know what color sunscreen is? They said you got badly burnt. You need sunscreen. Sunscreen is white. Unconscious bias. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hysterical. And, of course, all of that woke BS is coming from her. He was never like that. But now it appears that Prince Harry has no sense of humor. And the, the guy, you know, he grew up as like the card of the family, right? Like he knew he was never going to be king. So there's a liberation in that. He was a wild party animal. You know, I mean, like crazy, you know, how, about Johnny Goodtime. And now he is such a sourpuss thanks to her. 
Yeah, and I think the tell for anyone like in you know, I think you can be anywhere on the political spectrum or whatever if you have a sense of humor. If you can laugh about anything, like I think most people get along through the thread, not like of aligned ideologies, but on the ability to to joke around, you know, and that's I think a great unifier for all, for all kinds of people of all different stripes. But if you can't laugh at yourself or other people, you know, then that's sort of where you're in that, you know, weird, oppressive, totalitarian culture of like wanting to – that's where it starts. You can kind of see it. And the traces of society that you see going in the, in the worst directions, uh, are, they go for the, the comedy first. They go for the humor because that's – I don't know. You just tend to see that pattern a little bit. You yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. Wokeness is like poison because it just, it depresses everybody. There's no sense of humor. There's no laughter. And that's what basically the Marxists want. They want you miserable because then you're more easily controlled. Um, can you give us one more impression? Can you give us your Dave Ramsey, the financial uh, guru? You do a brilliant one. Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, Monica, let me ask you this. How much is your income? <laughs> well, that's a highly personal question, Dave. Well, if you're in debt and you want to expand this podcast, then I would adv advise you to please save every single month at least $2, invest that in a portfolio, and get a reverse mortgage. Oh, well, thank you. That is excellent advice. Um, and, and you're saying that will set me on a path to financial stability? Well, yes. I mean, I think you should invest in some properties. And some people ask, should you rent or should you buy? Most people don't know that there's another option. It's called a bent. It's a combination. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go about getting a bent? You, get, you go about getting a bent. First, you acquire the properties. You have somebody else make the purchase. You sell the landlord into slavery, have them work for you for seven years. That's called indentured servitude. You do that, and then eventually you flip it into a reverse mortgage, and you start making some income because your best weapon out of this, Monica, is your income. Okay. Well, I think we illegalized indentured servitude a long time ago in this country. Aren't you suggesting something that's illegal? Well, that is how we got soft in this country. Are you aware of how absurd this situation is? We need to bring back some indentured servitude and make people work for seven years, and then you can flip that property into a reverse mortgage. Well, uh, that is a very controversial it's statement. It's, I'm not talking about slavery. I'm not talking about involuntarily. But if this landlord wants to get his property back and get his value up, you need to you need to exercise what I call a bent. <laughs> well, that that is an, a unique financial instrument. Hmm. Mm, certainly unique, and uh, it's what got me out of debt 30-some-odd years ago. I was 24. I was completely bankrupt, you know? My wife and I, we, we exercised a bent on a few properties. Guess what? We have a few indentured servants, and we have $500 million in rental property. Well, it's now a good time to, to tell you I'm about a million dollars in debt, Dave. What do I do? Mm. Mm. Wow. Do you have a pastor you could talk to? <laughs> yes. Mm. Okay. You belong to a church? Uh-huh. Mm, that is quite a mess, baby doll. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your pastor. You got a you, you got a million dollars in debt. A million dollars in debt. That is an absurd situation. Wow, you are in a heap of heap of trouble. Um, what I would say is, uh, you take a quarter, spare change. You create a little. You create a little box for yourself. You put those quarters in that box every single month, and you stop going out to restaurants. No travel. No food. No water for three weeks. See how long you can survive. You start that process. You begin saving monthly. Okay. And I'll be able to dig out of this mountain of debt with a quarter a day. If you don't go out to eat for fifteen years, <laughs> I guarantee you'll be saving enough money. I would get a slice of bread a day and maybe an apple. Maybe an apple if it's in season. <laughs> When it's out of season, you do not touch that apple, okay? You treat it like Adam and Eve, forbidden fruit. You understand? So now i got to ration the apple. That's a bite a day, huh? One bite a day keeps the debt away. <laughs> uh, Ami, this is so good. Do you have a favorite? Before we let you go, do you have a favorite character you like to play? You know, I leave that to the people. But, you know, the Jordan Peterson, the Gary V's, the Jordan Peterson's been good to me. I'm a fan of his work. Everyone's, like, always asking me... Uh, yeah, his work was impactful, and it took a little bit to crack the code on Jordan Peterson. But when I channel it properly and I'm in the zone, you know, it's like, well, you got to get that, you know, anthropological substructure intact to walk the line between order and chaos. So <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it's, it comes through pretty naturally. It's so good. It's so good. You are brilliant, Ami, and fun. And everybody, you can hear how amazing he is. If you're in the New York area on October 10th, go see him at the Stand Up New York Club, Stand Up NY. He's going to be headlining there for the very first time. Get your tickets. You're not going to want to miss it. StandUpNY.com. Again, StandUpNY.com, October 10th for Ami Kozak. Go support him. And, you know, when he's got his own sitcom, when he's a massive movie star and just huge, you're going to say, I remember when Monica Crowley put him on her podcast. I think I'm going to claim discovering you. Ami, is that okay? That's fine. As long as you acknowledge that I got you out of debt. (laughs) Okay, that is a deal. Ami Kozak, you are brilliant. Just remind everybody where they can find you on social media. Thank you, Monica. You can find me at AJ Comedy on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, at Ami Kozak Official on Instagram. Um, I'm the host of the Buckle Up podcast. I have a band called Distant Cousins if you want to hear some music as well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you, Monica. Okay, guys, that is going to do it for me. I hope you had a great time and some fun on the show uh, here today. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you also for checking out our phenomenal sponsors. Have a good balance of your week, and I will see you right back here on Thursday with Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna. Not to be missed. See you then. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Bahakel Entertainment, LLC.